0: you get off on the weird monsters halloween horror you've heard of word porn car porn earth porn now prepare yourself for monster porn is this really a good idea weird fiction and horror podcast created by the backwards hat guy matt cummins
1: are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals?
0: Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is 10 QT by Matt Cummins.
1: Good 2020, monster baiters. Don't ruin that perfect vision by monster until you go blind. Matt,
0: where'd you go? I can't see. <laughs> How are we doing on Apple podcast reviews, Matt?
1: Uh, we've been getting some great reviews, and a big thanks to all of our monster for leaving reviews. Uh, APOC1974 says, cool, vile, twisted. I get a kick out of this podcast, though it often goes sideways. This podcast is the love child of Hannibal Lecter and the Jerky. The only issue I have is you need real women for the women parts. Other than that, nice job. Well, we don't necessarily disagree with the female voices, APOC 1974. Uh, Thanks for the great review.
0: I also want to thank the folks at Oneshi Press for sending over a copy of their new illustrated novel, War and Horses. It's a Weird West story set in their Children of Gaia universe. I enjoyed reading it, and it features pretty cool art from comic artists Chris Covelli and J.L. Draco. Monsterbaiters, if you want to check it out, visit OneshiPress.com. They're a small publisher over in Montana specializing in comics and art books. I'll put up some pictures on Twitter. Thanks again for sharing your work with us. Uh, Any other news, Matt?
1: Nope, that's all the news. Subscribe, rate, review. Also, we're still open for bonus episode submissions. Thanks to everyone who's been sharing their writing with us. Keep it coming. That's it. On to the show. No, there's a magic circle on the floor. Never mind, I'll come back later. Ah, Matt,
0: you're just in time. That is what I was afraid of. What are you doing? I'm attempting to undo the deforestation of the Amazon.
1: With sorcery? I thought you were using sorcery to destroy the world, not save the environment.
0: I'm a turncoat, Matt. I go where the public opinion goes. Because above all, I am fashionable, and I have an image to project.
1: Says the man who unironically wears a cape. So you're using occult arts to summon trees because of fashion. Hmm. Yep. Sounds like a Brett plot to me.
0: And you're just in time. And I'm just going to leave. Leave? I haven't even said the spell in your making like a tree. Please don't turn me into a tree. It was a joke, Matt.
1: Is that what it was?
0: I've got this spell prepared to return life to trees that have been cut down all around the world. Wait, so what
1: happens to all the things that were made out of them?
0: Psh, you're overthinking things. It ruins the magic.
1: seems like a legitimate question.
0: Okay, here we go. As soon as I nail this green leaf to this discarded board, the spell will be complete.
1: Wait! (laughs) Next time, give me some warning so I can get my family to the sorcery bunker. Well, is it done? I don't know. Have a look out the window. Oh, what will I see? We are not in the Amazon. If
0: my calculations are correct, the whole Earth should be in the Amazon now.
1: Brett, there's an army of zombie trees walking down the street. What have you done? You literally brought dead trees back to life.
0: Well, it was necromancy.
1: Isn't this like the story you wrote? What did they do?
0: How did it end? Uh, with the protagonist's friend getting eaten by the tree.
1: Fuck! The lead-lined shed roof of the bunker was heavy, but Daniel had made provisions for this. There was a crank wheel that would open the door through a set of pulleys which ran from the crank up through the foundation and the walls of the home above. The home Daniel assumed was above, that is, it had been nearly seven years since he had seen the world above, and though he'd kept up with the news via satellite television that was piped into the bunker through cables that ran to a dish nearly a mile away, Daniel hadn't so much as communicated with a single person in that seven years. And the TV had gone black weeks ago. Daniel put his hands on the crank and turned it, but nothing happened. He tried again, slipped, and banged his shoulder against the pulley and swore. Rubbing his shoulder, he went to the tool locker and brought out a pipe wrench. One of those ones you always see the dudes on oil rigs carrying over their shoulders in the movies. He went back to the crank and locked the wrench into the wheel and pulled. Nothing happened. He changed the position of the wrench and kicked it as hard as he could. The first kick did nothing, but he thought it felt like it would give. On the second kick, the pulley moved. He grabbed the wrench and put all of his weight into it. The crank began to spin free. He took the wrench off and finished cranking open the lid to the bunker by hand. A ray of light passed overhead and shone upon a spider climbing the concrete shaft that led into the bunker. It had been seven years since he last seen the sun. He put on his sunglasses, turned to the sex robot he'd named Juliet, and said, I'll be back, Jules. Don't let Katrina get you down. It's not her fault. The doll looked back at him in unnerving silence. Looking far too human and having no humanity at all, he placed his oxygen mask over his mouth and climbed. At the top of the ladder, he looked out over the land, his land. The grass was tall, and even though he could see the cover over the driving mower where he'd left it just for this contingency, He didn't consider that the grass would grow to well over four feet. What had happened to the cows, he wondered. Daniel climbed out of the shaft and set his feet on soft earth. The grass was coming up to his chest, and he put his hands out and touched life for the first time in seven years. Daniel walked through the grass towards the wreckage that definitely had not been there when he'd gone under. A helicopter's propeller was sticking up from a twisted pile of rusted wreckage. He heard the explosion, and he'd worried that it was finally going to reach him when the lights in his bunker flickered. That's it, he thought. Despite all the preparations, I'm going to die just like the rest of them. But then the lights came back on, and nothing similar happened after that. Daniel ignored the wreckage and headed up the hill. He found that the grass was thinner at the top, and once he reached that point, he turned and looked out over his land. Thirty acres enclosed by a thick concrete wall he'd had installed two years before he went under. After his father had passed, he had inherited a healthy fortune, as his father was the town's richest man. He owned several large buildings downtown, including the bank and a museum that featured a Tyrannosaurus rex fossil set. Tourism and the lofty prices of rent downtown had grown his father's fortune steadily over the period of 40 years. When Daniel came into the money, he hired a local muralist to paint a western sunset on the north face of the bank building. The western scene painted through the eyes and hands of a self-described street artist was a sight to behold. Daniel sold the building, which only added to his millions, and with that he began to build his doomsday bunker. YouTube had been Daniel's primary source of information about the world. And with the new release of a global Wi-Fi upcoming, Daniel had gone down a rabbit hole of videos where people with masked faces reported disquieting findings in the studies about the upcoming Wi-Fi that was going to put 5G to shame. This new signal, 10QT, was supposed to allow instantaneous downloads, and it was based in quantum teleportation. Data would be shot across great distances using physics that not even science fiction authors could dream up. Conspiracy was that this signal was the ultimate form of mind control, that the government was actually hacking the human brain's long-dormant ability to send and receive information over space. Telepathy had once been possible, and though we still had the hardware, we lost our connection to it. 10QT was supposedly tapping into this latent ability and the government was going to create worldwide conformity. The usual players were to blame, the Illuminati and the fringe of the fringe, the lizard people. Daniel looked across his land at the barricade around the compound. It had held up fairly well. There were no failures. Largely, his property had been left alone. He looked out toward the gate and saw that the paved road was mostly intact. He climbed down, and made his way to the gate, and adjusted the aluminum foil hat that he had wrapped around the top of his lead-lined helmet as he went. Three weeks ago, things went quiet. His satellite was intact. He knew that because he was still receiving information from it, but the information was nothing but static. He tried the radio waves, and got nothing but white noise. When Daniel went under seven years before, several of the major networks had gone dark. Television and news were primarily working via satellite. He'd gone seven years meditating, listening to music, watching films, learning every language and instrument that he could, talking to himself, talking to the walls, naming the walls, and having a more than simply intimate relationship with the half-dozen woman-looking robots he'd purchased for the bunker. His first month in, he thought he had died and gone to heaven as the robots had been programmed to interact with one another. He felt like an ancient king with his concubines, but after a few months, their programming went a little haywire, and they began almost entirely ignoring him and pairing off with one another. He tried the simple voice commands, but they only responded in appraising, condescending stares before resuming their simplistic conversations of introducing themselves to one another and asking how they could please each other. He had become completely irrelevant to them, so he shut them all down and would only turn on one each week. Eventually, he realized that he could only have two on at a time, but no more. Without the ability to connect to the internet, they were prone to odd behavior if allowed to congregate. He then occupied his time in researching the phenomena that had taken over the planet with the information that he had available to him over what remained of the internet before it crashed. The zombie apocalypse never came. Civilization didn't succumb to a superbug, not in the traditional sense. The Russians and the U.S.'s leaders hadn't given in to the morbid fascination of pressing the button and sending the world into nuclear fallout. China kept its million-man army at bay, and even North Korea behaved itself outside of its own borders. Civilization suffered a rapid decay into pure insanity. It started with an increased lethality and common crimes. There weren't more people committing crime, but when crime occurred, it escalated. Muggings weren't more frequent, but were more frequently lethal. Carjackings more often led to police chases as the carjackers lost the subtlety of slipping into the fold of traffic, instead opting for the high-speed escapes that led to dangerous chases. Offense and outrage became widespread, at first in a way that was identified as political climate. Simple mistakes led to pure outrage, people didn't simply disagree anymore. Neighbors began to see neighbors' differing beliefs as part of an insidious nationwide agenda. Conservatives and liberals began to square off in public, at first at political rallies and in protests, but eventually the showdowns moved into the grocery stores and side streets. Within a short time of the release of the new Wi-Fi, a political bumper sticker on a car was seen as just shy. Of a threat of war. Shaming was removed from the public discourse entirely. A woman in Idaho told her neighbor, whose bathroom scale surely fretted her approach, that she may feel a little better if she lost some weight, and was curb stomped by the postman who overheard her insensitive speech. The woman, whose teeth and jaw would never interact with the rest of her cranium, in a natural way, ever again, was then sued by not only the volume-enriched neighbor for the hate speech, but also by the postman for inciting violence. The judge knew all about the inner torment caused by the words of an insensitive. He was part of the slightly taller than average club and had long been insecure, for the past three weeks at least, about his slightly above average altitude when he was wearing shoes with above standard heels. The woman was last seen by a newspaper reporter pushing a cart down the street wearing her strange helmet and neck brace while sucking food through a straw. The local newspaper who identified her had a front page article that said, Hero Boy Helps Environment by Taking Straw from Hater. Doctors were ran out of their offices for suggesting that people were living anything other than their best lives. With fear of lawsuits, Doctors decided to not only skip examinations but to instead freely hand out prescriptions to anyone who entered their offices. Dentists were hunted down in the streets by hordes of the protesting toothless known as gummies, people who'd embraced their right to ignore hygiene as a personal choice. The pungent aroma of office spaces around the country led to an increase in instances of people going postal in the workplace as you could not shame nor fire someone for their choice to no longer shower, shampoo, deodorize, or treat unsightly rashes that arose from poor hygiene. Receptionists, male or female, could not be hired based on looks. Companies would be immediately boycotted if a smiling pretty face was the first thing you saw when you entered the building. Standards of health, fitness, and nutrition were replaced with a happiness standard. If a person dipped below the 50th percentile in the happiness index, they would be pumped so full of antidepressants they'd practically float out of the hospital doors. Tribes that lived out of reach of the modern world were the first to succumb to the utter insanity. Tribal villages worldwide began suffering strange headaches accompanied by an invasion of strange foreign thoughts. Tribes that had lived in harmony for hundreds of years began to become suspicious of their neighbors. They felt that the other tribes were not being sensitive to their differences and began calling each other out in languages neither could understand and hated each other more for not being respectful enough to learn the other's language. Thoughts that had never occurred or seemed important to the indigenous groups turned them from the small community-oriented individuals They needed to be to survive deep in the jungles of the tropics and rainforests into self righteous narcissists. They began hoarding fruit and fish, building the largest huts, and digging massive trenches to divert water from their neighbors into reservoirs, among other various activities worldwide. Eventually, small wars began, and the trade of produce for weapons led to certain produce heavy tribes being able to compile arms and then dominate the region, becoming the ruling tribe just long enough for the tribe members to begin sticking up for those other tribes who had been recently dominated. Political unrest and turmoil led to demonstrations and violence. Before the modern world was able to even realize it, these tribesmen killed one another until there were no tribes left. Just horrifying homicidal individuals running loose through the savannas, jungles, and in small arctic villages. Rumors of strange boogeyman in the remote places would have once made for headlines in the backwaters of the internet. But with the rest of the world's insanity, no one noticed. Not even the anthropologists. War never had a chance to happen in the modern world. Not nation against nation, that is. Terrorism started from the outside in, but then each country grew more and more paranoid and violent. Fringe beliefs about flat Earth and lizard people living in the planet's core led to people attacking the Earth, drilling holes and building towers, trying to find the truth of horrors within and without. The outrage was so all consuming that no one even noticed the extreme increases in violence at schools. Some parents were sending their children to school in tactical gear. Mass shootings were more reliable than the morning news. Martial law was declared but the soldiers turned on peaceful citizens and then one another. Anarchy ruled, and Daniel spent several years living in the relative silence of his bunker with nothing but his hobbies and his robots. The internet had still been accessible, but for months there had been no new uploads. Eventually, Daniel found a single channel that was being run somewhere out of a bunker in West Virginia that reported occasionally But before it finally went black, it had become basically the insane rantings of a very lonely man named Thomas who shot himself on his last live stream. The very last thing Daniel read before his internet went dark was a conspiracy theorist who wrote from his own bunker and said, It appears as if the whole of human emotion that has been so pervasive on the internet and on news feeds and in comment sections for years has been broadcast by this signal and we are all responding like ants driven into insanity by a diseased queen. We haven't had enough time to evolve a symbiosis with our technology. We have yet to reach the point of singularity or true artificial intelligence, but we've effectively hacked our own minds and no one seems to notice it. The design of the worldwide signal was meant to be able to survive widespread war and the collapse of the modern world. It can run without human intervention for 20 years before it depletes its power sources. The amount of emotional information all those living above ground are downloading is driving them insane. But it's happening to the haves and have-nots alike. Only those of us who got underground before the signal went live will survive with our minds. But what may be more horrifying than the collapse of society is what will still be living once it is gone. What cruel and terrible creatures will this create? Daniel had pondered those words. The same writer had provided instructions for a helmet that would block the signal as it appeared the front lobe of the brain is where the information seemed to absorb. A long, dormant organ that existed inside the brain was now reactivated, but if blocked, it would remain disconnected. Daniel slid the massive steel gate open after a few minutes of struggling with the rusted lever. The sky was clear overhead, but in the distance, a large thunderhead was building over the mountains. Daniel walked down the sidewalk that had not yet begun to crumble, but was being invaded by weeds at every imperfection. His acreage had been on the edge of a small town, and on the edge it had remained, as the town had seemingly halted growth upon him going underground. Plants were taking over the buildings as weeds grew up in vines and thorns over the street signs and the sides of buildings. Brick crumbled and windows had shattered long ago. Charred timbers and foundations were all that remained of the whole residential blocks. Faded spray paint covered the side of the bank building that he and his father had once owned. He recognized the style of the street artist's signature in the graffiti over the painting. Each line had been added over time with the first being more faded than the last. The first line read, We are better together. Don't succumb to madness and hate. The next line said in the same blue paint, Hate breeds hate. Love breeds love. The next line was easily visible in the same blue paint. Hate breeds hate. The last three lines were painted in blood red. Hate breeds, then hate breed, then Breed hate, breed hate, breed hate, 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 hate! Below the words, there was a small hole in the cinder block surrounded by a fading rust-like discoloration. On the ground below this, Daniel found a couple of bones, a rusted old handgun, and a skull with a hole where its front teeth should be. The back half of the skull was missing entirely. Daniel leaned over and vomited when he realized what he was looking at. He vomited right on the bones of the painter he'd once hired, and, with a wretch, he vomited again. He stood and considered for a moment that a human body had lain here in the street of this small town that he'd grown up in, and it had lain until the animals had pulled the carcass, and he felt his stomach shift again at the thought of a human body as a carcass apart, until the bones were spread, leaving little more than the skull. He continued down the street, stumbling and catching himself on the husk of old cars and once a bent and twisted street lamp. He saw other things, too. He saw what looked like a femur in the street. There was the smell of something rotting coming from a car that came alive with an explosion of black flies as he passed too close. He turned down the street habit and instinct taking over as he stumbled towards the museum. Daniel tightened the strap on his metal helmet, making sure that there was no way it could possibly fall off. When he undid the chin strap to check it, the helmet slid back, exposing the forehead, and for a moment, it was as though the voltage had been turned up inside his brain. He had a thousand feelings at once. He loved his family, but hated their shortcomings. He loved himself, had hated what society had turned him into suddenly he had the feeling that everyone could see him and that all of his insecurities were naked to scrutiny he tried to cry out but he couldn't speak his mind and mouth were disconnected and with no outlet the emotion stormed into rage and then and then he slid his helmet back on and buckled the leather strap his head was pounding as though he had a strong but not quite unbearable hangover he went into the coffee shop across the street from the museum The inside of the shop was in shambles. Few broken dishes and tables remained, but otherwise the place had been thoroughly looted. Across the street at the museum, the animatronic dinosaur on the front steps had been completed, but it was now rusted and looked as ancient as the velociraptor it represented. Daniel stood where there had once been a window with the word Java Bean painted across it and looked at the stone museum with its slightly gothic mid-century architecture and thought the building itself looked like an ornate skull with its large, busted, stained-glass windows and the gaping maw where the double doors once stood. Daniel watched in horror as a figure passed by the door, and then it all went silent and still. Overhead, ravens gathered on old power lines and caught at him, a flag that had once waved high over the museum caught in a gust of wind and fluttered to the ground where it lay in a tattered heap. The squeak of a greaseless wheel overtook the dying gust as a figure approached the museum door. At first, it was just the silhouette of a man pushing something tall, or perhaps holding something while limping slightly. What came out into the light was hard to identify as a man. Daniel stood, looking at the robotic technician who had been hired to do the animatronics for the Dinosaur Museum. His once full blonde hair was gone. But what replaced it was a scarred scalp that had the color and texture of the surface of Mars, save for a few bristles of hair. His right eye had no eyelid and stood maniacally bugging out and weeping a yellowish goop down his scarred cheek. His upper lip had been cut off entirely, leaving him in a permanent grin of absolute insanity. He wore a tattered white shirt that barely covered his skeletal physique. He was pushing an IV that was hooked into his left arm. His right arm had been replaced with a makeshift prosthetic from one of the dinosaur robots. If he had to guess, he would have said that it was a T Rex. It served as a sort of hook in which the man, whose name had once been Jonathan, stood holding a human arm. He raised it to his mouth and tore a chunk off and chewed it eagerly as he looked up and down the street with his ghastly eyes and then he giggled and went back inside chewing on his or someone else's arm meat.
0: Okay, Matt. I fit chainsaws in your arms instead of hands. You are the world's last hope to stop the deadfall.
1: Is that what we're calling this apocalypse? I thought it was witty. Oh boy, this is going to make my weekend alone time a little bit of an adventure, isn't it?
0: Alright, and I'll back you up with the hedge trimmer. Ready? Ready?
1: I've always wanted chainsaws for hands since I was a kid. Glad life gave me this opportunity, you know?
0: I'm going to throw open the shop door. Here we go. Okay. Ready. Wait, 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 wait. We need a name. What? Well, we're starting a tree removal
1: service business.
0: We're going to need a, a name in order to do business, right?
1: I don't know. Just, like, put our names together or something and say what we do. It's not that hard.
0: Okay. Uh, We're the Norman's Tree Service. What? Who's Norman? Try it the other way. Uh, Okay. Put our names together the other way. Uh, world, get ready for Team Cumminwood. Wood. Oh, never mind. Worse. Definitely worse.
1: Cumminwood Wood Woodbeaters. I don't know. It has a ring to it. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Uh, let's just call a tree removal company from the phone book.
0: But Matt, who's going to whack this wood till it all goes back down?
1: Yeah, I'm just going to step outside and let the zombie trees eat my brains.
0: But Matt, you have so much to live for. You have chainsaws for hands. Huh,
1: well, yeah, I I guess that's true.
0: You bet it's true, buddy. Wait, look out the window, Matt.
1: What is happening to... Oh my god, is that...
0: Yes, the tree zombies are getting gobbled up by giant kaiju beavers.
1: Where did they come from?
0: Doubtlessly, they have slumbered in the earth for ages, waiting for the day the prophecy of the zombie tree apocalypse would be fulfilled. When nations' kings like Aspen's quake... And thirsting roots no carnage slake. When rotten bark spoils air and leaves earth. Raging woods met by big brown beavers. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was 10QT by Matt Cummins. Music. By me, Brent Norwood. Good day, Monster Baters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite app and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps, and we thank you for all the support you've given us. You can also check out the official Monster Porn store at monsterpornpodcast.com store, where you can find T-shirts, phone cases, stickers, the Mom's Love Monster Porn mug, Odin's Missing Eyeball, the Honor of Achilles, and a half-played game of shoots and Ladders. We're still open for bonus episode submissions. If you're a weird writer, and no, I mean like a weird writer, have a look at our submission guidelines at monsterpornpodcast.com submissions. Also be sure to follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Creep on us. We would, but we're already us. That's it. I've got to make like a tree and, uh, exit. Until the shark angels come, stay weird. And Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. I fit chainsaws on your hands instead of arms. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! What
1: happened
0: to my arms?
1: But at least you still have your hands. Uh. When Daniel came into the money, he hired a local muralist to paint a Western sunset. Sunset. Eastern sunshit. Sunset. Sunset.
0: What a beautiful sunshine. Ah, it's burning! Sorry. <laughs> it's like Napalm. <laughs> Napalm from the gods.
1: The conspiracy was that this signal was the ultimate form of mind control. That the government was actually hacking the human's brain. The human's brain.
0: One specific human. Just
1: that one fucking. Larry! God damn it, Larry! Put your tinfoil hat on! Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He climbed down and made his way out to the gate. God you damn it. it! I shattered <laughs> it. Carjacking, er, jackings, <laughs> my precious. Carjackings more often led to the police chases that you would see on those stupid TV shows. But I'm making all that shit up because I screwed up after the second word of this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you <told me> that. <laughs> Carjackings more often led to police chases as the carjackers lost the subtlety. Sub, <laughs> all right,
0: Colin. All <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Anarchy ruled, and Daniel spent several years living in the relative silence of his bunker with nothing but his hobby. and a, His hobby? He's got one hobby. And unfortunately that hobby is tic-tac-toe and he has nobody to play with